And we're going to jump ahead of First Corinthians chapter 2. Now I want to begin reading in verse 6. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. It is in correlation with today's message, which is really focused on the whole book of First Corinthians, um, as, uh, but specifically some of the early aspects in, in chapter 1. But we want to expand it to this as well. First Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 6, God's Word says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak in the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yet the deep things of God. For what man knows for what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The introduction and really delved into already some key theology that uh, Paul is going to be relying upon to deal with some of the circumstances and issues at hand in the church of Corinth. And really at hand, not only in Corinth, but for all believers, because he does stipulate that... um, it's not just the Corinthians. They're not isolated and alone, but rather they are um, in the same boat as all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have uh, seen him talk about that calling of God toward holiness, that we are to be saints, that we are to be set apart. And certainly that's going to be an important uh, foundation for him in dealing with some of the sin issues that are in, going on in the church. Uh, he has further described that work of God, that of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And in the first ten verses, we find uh, you cannot neglect, and you can't miss that in the first ten verses, the name Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ, or Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ the Lord, is ten times in ten verses. Paul is very adamantly establishing who it is that we are followers of. And we understand that very quickly when by the time we get to verses 12 and 13 where we find people saying, I'm a follower of so-and-so. Paul wants there to be no mistaking whose servant he is and who is to be the one that we are to serve and follow, who it is that actually saved us, who it is that died for us, who it is that is trustworthy, who it is that we depend upon, who it is that we follow. 
that we are disciples of Christ. He has used the word on several occasions, um, and he was going to continue to use that word into 1 Corinthians. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, he will not use it at all. But in 1 Corinthians, he's going to use it extensively, uh, particularly in three chapters, but uh, really it's in, it's found throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and we find it extensively here in chapter 1. We find this idea of the calling of God upon the believers. What has God called us to? And that's very important that we understand the context of this calling uh, and what the it entails and what it does not entail, and that we are careful with the context here, reminding ourselves that this book is written to a group of believers. It is written with the idea of drawing them to a different plane of righteous living, individually as well as corporately as a group, that they as a body of Christ might raise the bar, so to speak, in their midst toward righteousness and holiness. The word that he continues to use again and again throughout this book is this idea of our calling. We see it right away in chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul's called to be an apostle. We find in verse 2 that they are called to be saints. Interesting that they join a group of other people but we use a different way of using this word called, that you are joining all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And now instead of God calling men, it is men calling upon God. We find that in verse 2. We are, of course, going to be moving along, and it's going to talk about, in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this idea of the calling of God upon us um, is going to be very critical to what Paul wants to communicate. That there is an expectation by God upon the believer's life. And that fundamental to us becoming a Christian is, first of all, that we can hear that calling, that we can know it, that we can identify it, because the natural man doesn't identify what the expectations of God upon him. Secondly, that not only can we hear it and and recognize it, but we have already made a commitment to it. And Paul is essentially using this word to remind them of the commitments they have made in coming to know Christ. We have many that want to use this term um, almost exclusively and predominantly with regard to salvation, that calling people to be saved. Um, and I don't find it used that way very rarely in the Bible. And when I look at the context, it is calling believers to a particular uh, blessing or life that God has ordained for us. And I try to communicate in this fashion that God has ordained that all those who trust in Him will receive 
this kind of gift. And we just got done with our Word Life Teens um, going through the list of the multifaceted gift of God that we receive when we receive Christ as our Savior. It's not just one thing that happens to us. It's not just that we get saved from our sin. There are many, many things that God has ordained to give to those who receive Him as Savior and Lord. And we hear this word calling and we sing about it sometimes and um, that Jesus is earnestly, tenderly calling you to salvation. Um, but we find in Corinthians as well as other Paul's writings, he predominantly uses it not towards salvific calling, but towards the calling of God on believers. What has God called you to? And so... I don't want you to read these kinds of verses and think, well, that's for somebody else who needs to get saved. These verses are written to a church, many of whom Paul was instrumental in their coming to Christ. He knew these people. They had already been baptized. Some of them had some kind of leadership in the church as well. And Paul's communicating to them, listen, I have this calling upon me to be an apostle, but you have a calling upon you as well to be something. See, not only does God provide us this great blessing, this multifaceted gift called salvation, but He also has an invitation or a bidding for you to obey. Of what He anticipates that as a recipient of this great gift of what you will be. That he who has cleansed you from all sin expects you then to be holy as he is holy. It is his calling on your life, believer. It is not the calling of God on the unbeliever. God does not demand that the world be holy as he is holy. The expectation is quite the opposite. We expect them to sin because that is fundamentally who they are and what they are. They are called and invited to repentance. We are the ones to whom God expresses these calls that Paul's going to list there to be holy, be saints. We can't confuse these. And I think some of our churches, uh, particularly more to the right, uh, the ultra-conservative ones that would say, you know, you're not invited, you're not allowed into church unless you're wearing the certain clothes and your hair is a certain length and your Bible is a certain brand. Um, they want you to be holy before you get there. Um, we don't have that expectation of the world. We don't. We, we want you to invite people to come in. We want them to be sinners because that's what they are. And we want them to become saints. We don't want them to come in here and pretend to be saints and leave here still sinners. I'd prefer they come in sinners and become saints. And that means you have to deal with weird stuff that we might cringe at and say, oh, that... How can you say that word in the church? Well, they're not the church yet. And by the way, there's no special thing here in this building, but um, that sin never happens in this room. Well, it does. What makes this place holy is what happens here and who's doing it. Not a certain prayer blessing on the steel and concrete. 
And so God's calling upon us is to be something that which He has recreated us as. So let's consider this a little bit just in some of the verses right around 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to first of all take you to verse 21 of chapter 1. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God. The world didn't know God. Doesn't know God. And so, Paul's, let's go back and let's talk about God's relationship with the world. The world doesn't know Him. They don't know the wisdom of God. They don't know what pleases God. It says that... that um, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the world is out there ignorant of what God is and His demands. And so God says, listen, by wisdom, by intellectual assent, by simply sharpening your mind or figuring things out, by rationalizing, you are not going to naturally come to God. And so God does something wondrous and to the world seems foolish to come and give you not an irrational invitation, but a super rational invitation from an almighty God and invites you to believe. And he says, I will save you. And what requires for salvation is that you believe. And it states here very clearly, right here in verse 21, the foolishness of the message is preached for what purpose? To save those who believe. Now, is belief something that I produce? It is something that I work at? No. Repentance, belief, faith, reception of the offer of God is nowhere, anywhere in Scripture associated with a thing that we create or that we um, perform. It is not a work. And to say, well, belief and repentance and faith um, violate the principle that by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves um, is, is ridiculous. These things are not ever described as the work man does, but rather as a response of man to this wonderful offer of God that from a world's perspective is kind of foolish. If you really think about it, you're believing that somebody else can die for your sins? Someone else... I was in traffic court today. And I want you to understand how it works. Um, when you get a red light camera, I got, and they're not on anymore, right? They got turned off January. Yeah, I just snuck under the belt there. I got one in just before they got turned off. And, uh, it might have been me driving, I think. But, um, it was the very day I sold my truck. And so it, it, it was probably me, but could have been him. But, uh, <coughs> There was some a family there, couple there, ahead of me, and uh, they were as guilty as my truck was guilty, <clears throat> and it was my truck that was guilty. That's what they said. It wasn't me. It was my truck. That's what the guy said. And so their vehicle was guilty of going through the light too, whoever was driving that one, and they wanted to. The wife was there, sitting beside the husband who got the ticket, while well, his vehicle did, because the car was the guilty one. Um, and she made, they made an offer. They said, well, you can finance this fee, fine if it's too hard for you to pay the $75. Or you can do community service for seven hours for the city. And the wife said, can I do the community service for my husband? And they looked at him and said, sure. 
We don't care who pays. Well, someone pays. Isn't that a great principle that our government has in place? They don't care who pays the fine, just so that the fine gets paid. Well, its, it's foundation is in legal action is what God is working off of. He's willing to pay your penalty. And this is, the world says, well, why? Well, because of His love for you, but it's a love that the world can't comprehend and can't grasp, even though we have that example right there in this court setting. You know, yes, it's fine for you. If you want to go to jail for your husband, go ahead. Well, I know it wasn't jail, it was community service, but the concept is there, the principle is there, that there can be a substitute. And the Bible says, here's this message that's foolishness to the world, but it can save those who believe. But when you look at the word calling that Paul uses here in Corinthians, is not referring to this act of God. It is beyond it, on the other side of it. And so, those who believe are saved. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Those who believe are saved. God saves those who believe. Now, let's go to chapter 2, which we read earlier. And see this wonderful description, this extension of the wisdom of God, and he's going to spend some time on the wisdom of God. Of course, we're going to get, when we get to those passages specifically, we're going to spend a lot of time describing that and what's entailed in that. Sorry about that. Verse 9 is what I want to focus in on. They're quoting the Scripture out of Isaiah. It says, But it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. And this is what Paul is going to focus in on for the benefit of the Corinthian Christian walk. Is what has God prepared ahead of time, not for everybody, but for those who love Him. And I will contend the for those who love Him are the same group back there who are saved because they believe. They believe in Christ. Jesus is their Savior and Lord. God saves them. Now, the wisdom of God is revealed to us so that now we discover something that we didn't figure out very well before we got saved, and that is, wow, God's grace and mercy are wide and deep and long. And He has prepared all of this before the ages, before the foundation of the earth. He decided ahead of time what kind of salvation He would provide to all those who believe. And and this is the statement, none of us... It's beyond our conception. It's beyond our experience. It's beyond anything we could dream of what God has prepared for those who believe, for those who love Him. And so once we have entered into that relationship with God, God says, listen, now you begin to understand my calling on you. Not calling you to salvation, but now that you have received my salvation by faith in my Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, I want to share with you what I prepared for you. I prepared a feast for you, a banquet for you. I have prepared some wondrous things for you. And the Corinthian Christians missed it. Somehow along the way, whether they weren't listening that day when Paul was preaching or you know, the room was too cold and now they couldn't think about what he was saying or I don't know what happened. <clears throat> Somewhere the Corinthians lost track 
of the great responsibility of being the recipients of God's salvation and what the ensuing expectations of God were. They claimed to have the superior knowledge of God's grace, and yet they missed its import on their life. What is its demands? Now that I've been a recipient of it, what is God's expectations? And God says, listen, you can't even begin to grasp what I've prepared for you. You couldn't understand it before you were saved. And this is, I want to, this is a little extra, okay? My voice is holding out, so I'm going to do it. We think that we can go to the world and tell them all the great stuff God wants to do for them and that will entice them to be saved. And that is the philosophy of our day. That we just want to list off for them, God wants to do this for you, do this for you, do this for you, do this for you. But the Bible says they can't get it. You can explain to them to your blue in the face all the wonders of what it means to be a child of God and they won't get it. That's what it says here in chapter 2 and in chapter 1. They don't get it. The world doesn't understand it. Who has it been revealed to? It's been revealed to us who have the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God with them. They can't value those things. We can sit there and say, oh, don't you want this wonderful stuff that God's prepared for you? And our and the answer is no. Because they don't get it. They don't want what they can't understand. They don't want it. Because they don't grasp it. They're, and in verse 14 of chapter 2 it says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And we sit here and try to rehearse for the unbeliever what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. And it doesn't impress them. It does not impress them. We begin sounding like Hollywood's commercials. And we think that that's going to draw them to salvation. You know, look, if you get saved, maybe um, you can become an NFL football player. And by the way, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Tebow has to say this week. Now is when he can be even more powerful testimony than last week. Do you still follow after Christ and praise His name when you lose? The world needs to know that. You pray for Him. Okay? This is a great opportunity this week for Him to really shine. Where was I? (laughs) We cannot entice people, and that's not what God has ever done, to this wonderful stuff And when we share this calling of God upon our life for all the good things God has in store for us, um, we can't, we don't, we don't communicate that to the lost because they don't get it. They can't get it. They, they can't conceive of the value of it. And so what do we do in our evangelism is we confront them with the other side that God is righteous, holy, pure, just, and He is your judge and you're going to have to answer to Him. And they get that. You know why? Because they know they're guilty. And so they can get that. Yeah, I've done evil things and I have this guilty conscience and I don't have peace. And I, I you know, and, and I, I'm going to have to answer for this stuff and I know that. And that's how we witness as we share, you know, <laughs> you're guilty and you're going to have to answer for this and, and there's punishment involved and we understand that. That is something the world gets. They get that. They don't get grace very much. They don't understand 
what this is, this calling of God is, but they do understand sin, guilt, punishment. And what we introduce to them is, you deserve this. Someone has paid it for you if you allow them. If you'll accept that message. And it's, like it says, even that alone is a foolish message to the world. And yet that is the message that will bring them to salvation. Once saved, once we have received Christ as our Savior, now we are among those who love Him, Isaiah says. Now we can begin the discovery of all the things that God has prepared for us. What has He prepared? What has He designed ahead of time for us? What has God's designed for me? What is it that He has in store for me? And, and Paul says, listen, God's design for me was to be an apostle. Was that important to Paul before when he was back Saul? No! It was the farthest thing from his mind. I'm going to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the enemy of Christ. He didn't get that until he received Christ as his Savior. Then the calling of God upon his life matters because fundamentally what salvation is is the surrendering of my will to God's will. If you are failing to grasp that fact, um, which I think a lot of Christians have failed to do, and so they are living their own life while professing Christ to be their Savior, they're living the way they want instead of the way God wants. But fundamentally, when we receive Christ as our Savior, in that act of surrender to God, we are saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in my life. And that is the act of salvation. And if that's not happening in your life, you're not a believer today. I don't care if you believe that God exists. I don't care if you celebrate Easter and Christmas. I don't care any of that. But if you have not surrendered your will to that one Jesus Christ, you are not a saint. You are not a child of God. Fundamentally, the act of faith is one of surrender. I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. I'm not trusting in me, but in you alone. I surrender. And we sing that song, I surrender all to Jesus, and that is coming to Christ. Now the Christian life is about expanding and discovering the depth and breadth and height of that surrender. Paul says, listen, this isn't what I chose for my life. God called me to it. And that call wasn't irresistible. That call was, here's what God expected out of me. And because I genuinely surrender myself to God and I want to please Him, now that He has revealed this invitation to me, this bidding to me to come and be His disciple, His apostle, I obeyed it. And that's who I am. And brethren, God has made you pure in His sight by the shed blood of Jesus Christ has has separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. Now His calling on you is to be holy. That is to live out your sainthood and to be righteous in a godless way. Or in a godless world. I'm sorry, in a godless way. In a godless world that you are to be righteous. That's His calling upon you. It is one of the things He's prepared ahead of time that all those who call upon His name, He will give you the power and the capacity now that you never had before to be holy.
And shame on the Christian community for shortchanging that. Well, we all sin. Why? When I have the Holy Spirit of God within me, I'm a child of God, I've claimed to surrender my will to God, why don't I fulfill the calling of God to be holy? To be a saint. Verse 9, this calling of God, what else has God called us to? If it says God is faithful, and again, once I've trusted in Christ Jesus is my Savior, and I have this right relationship with God, His faithfulness suddenly is very important. Because I recognize that He has called me into something very wonderful that I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the thoughts of men. He has called us not to some low place in heaven, but He has called us into the fellowship of His Son. He is not just going to save us from our sins and deliver us from death and destruction, but He wants more than that for us. He has designed salvation to be much greater than that. He has called us into this fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, interestingly, in the very next verse, Paul's going to use the opposite word. And maybe sometimes through through uh, antonyms, we can um, learn what one word means by learning what the opposite word would be translated. And so the opposite Greek word of fellowship is used in the very next verse. Can you find it? It's called divisions. It's the exact opposite Greek word. It's the anti to the other word. And so God says, I've called you into this oneness with Christ. Why in the world are you divided among yourselves? Oh, this is what God calls us to? A oneness with Christ? Yes, once you believe. It's not that He has called you to salvation here. That is not anywhere implied here. God's faithfulness to us is over the time as we have come to Christ. Now that we have come to Christ, we are called into a oneness with Christ. An undivided relationship where God looks at His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and looks at us and He sees one. We're His bride. And don't miss that picture that two become one. But the bride and the groom, when conjoined, are one in God's sight. And God says, He is the bridegroom. You are the bride. And, and in My sight, you are one. I have brought you into fellowship, into union with one another. And so we are not a second-rate citizenship in heaven, but rather a first-rate. We who have trusted in Christ we who have responded to God's invitation of salvation now are invited into this wonderful relationship with Christ of oneness. We are joint heirs is another text that's used. But we have this calling upon us to be one with Christ. To have this fellowship, this communion with Him. We are not out there, um, okay, I'm saved now, I'm going to live the way I like, I'm going to walk with who I want to walk, I want to be what I want to be. No. God says, listen, one of the things I've prepared ahead of time for those of you who love me and will respond to my offer of salvation is I'm going to make you one with my son. I'm going to bring you into that kind of a, of a, of a communion with me. That kind of a relationship that uh, you're not 
uh, distinct from him, but rather in a fellowship with him, that one who is our Lord, that precious one whose name we have ten times in ten verses. You're one with him. This is the calling of God upon us. And again, because I've already surrendered my will at salvation, now when God says, listen, I've called you into this, I freely respond to that invitation. It should be now the new natural for me. It should be the new normal for me. I say new normal because it's not what we expect at the world at all. But in the church, it's what we should expect. In fact, everything that Paul's going to write is built upon this aspect that the demands of God are now the norm for the church. Why? Because we're not seeking our own. We're seeking Christ. We aren't looking out for my interest, but for the interest of Christ. For he who has been my benefactor is now the one to whom all of my thanksgiving goes towards and he is the one that I want glorified and exalted in me. And this is the calling of God upon us. It goes further. Look in chapter 1, verse 24. We read 21 that about salvation. Look at verse well, we better back up 22. Let's get the start of the, of the sentence. For the Jews, for Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God has called us. And because of that calling and our response to that calling, those who are called, those who are now in this relationship with God where He gives invitation after invitation after invitation and we, because we've surrendered our will to Him, because we believe and are saved, can respond to that calling and God says, I'm going to give you my wisdom. And you're going to have a capacity you did not have before. And that capacity is to grasp God's truth. To see His wisdom And to follow it. Something we weren't capable of prior to salvation. But now, on this side of salvation, we are called to it. We are called to the power of God and to the wisdom of God. And we walk in it. And we no longer go to the world and say, how should we live this life? What's a successful life look like? We go to God's Word and we say, this is where I find the definition of what a successful life is. This is how I define a successful church ministry. This is how I define a successful uh Exercise of my gifts. This is how I define a successful marriage. This is how I define successful finances. All of those are described for you right here in this book, 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to address all those things. How do you define success now in the church, in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your society? How do you define it now? It's not by the world and what they say, but now it's by the wisdom of God. And you have the capacity to fulfill that by the power of God. For God has called you to it. He has invited you to partake of His power. And just as salvation demanded a response from man, God says, I'm willing to forgive your sins. I'm going to bring you into this right relationship with me. I'm willing to save you. And if we believe, God said, trust in Him, God says He saves us. Well, now, 
it's not the end of God's calling, it's the beginning. Now, he's, just as when salvation, he waits for a response. I'm calling you to this fellowship. I'm calling you to be saints. I'm calling you into my power and wisdom. And he waits. And it's a phenomenal thing that God does. He waits. He waits. When you're ready to respond to my call, it'll all be yours. Paul went off after he was called to be an apostle and that was in conjunction with his salvation and that maybe caused some of the confusion between the two um, because that was almost simultaneous. But we find that it was many years later before he was really put into that ministry of the apostle that he was called to. God waited. He tried at Damascus right away and ran off and you know, was hunted down. But uh, he went off and God prepared him and invested some time in him. But Paul says, listen, I was responsive to the calling of God in my life because I'd already surrendered my will to him at salvation. It should be an easy thing from there on to just surrender my will to him over and over again in every area of my life. And the Corinthian church had to deal with a lot of areas of their lives that weren't in accordance with God's word. They were still living the world's ideas. They're still attached to those things that have been ingrained in them by society that they thought were wise. And God says, no, that's foolishness and it's death. Know the things of God. You have the Spirit of God now within you. And now the calling of God is upon you that we can live out these aspects of our church life and our personal lives and our family life differently. Because... We've been called to exercise God's power and wisdom in our midst. But you must choose to do so. Just as Paul had to choose to be obedient to God, you have to choose on a daily basis, am I going to follow God? I have called myself a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what disciple means. I've called myself his follower. Now what am I going to do with it? Am I going to really do that on a daily basis? Wake up and say, I'm going to follow God and, and exercise the gifts and the, and the uh, commands that He has placed upon my life and its demands and I'm going to be surrendered to Him today and seek not my own but His. And that means I'm going to spend some time in His Word and I'm going to seek out His wisdom. I'm going to spend some time um, exercising His power in my life because that's what He's called us to. He goes on, of course, in chapter 2 and talks about the Holy Spirit of God and the necessity of following after the Spirit and the, that precious gift of Spirit that we have in us. But we know from other passages that the Christian can resist the Holy Spirit, that the Christian cannot walk in the Spirit, that the, that the Christian can grieve the Spirit. It still has a demand upon you. And that's why I say it's not, we don't find it anywhere described as irresistible or as, a, as that something that, that is cast upon us. It is an invitation. I invite you into this preciousness. He's not inviting you to drudgery. He is inviting you and bidding you come into this union with my son. Come into this condition of, of sainthood. Come into my power and into my wisdom. Come into this 
and it goes on and on and on, come into this sanctifying work of, and this glorifying work of, of my son, come into this. And he calls us into it, come into this, this, uh, uh, wonderful, ex, uh, not experience, more than experience, this wonderful relationship with my spirit that I want to give you and I want to work at you, come into this service of mine. And I say, oh, I gotta be a slave. That doesn't sound fun. Well, you start, you're thinking like a natural man. If you think serving God isn't going to be fun, you're thinking in the natural man. And I have to say, if you think that's drudgery, maybe you're not a Christian. You don't get it. Because you're still so much in the natural man, you think serving is drudgery. Serving is joy. I feel really bad for Christians who are have no joy because they're all about themselves. You are doing it in the natural man and I have to start to wonder if it continues and carries on. Is Christ real in your life? Because as we're, we're going to come to this again when we get to First Corinthians chapter 2, but you're thinking like the natural man. Where's the wisdom of God? It's one of the things he's prepared ahead of time to give to all those who believe. If we believe and we receive that, then when we begin to understand, I'm going to surrender to God, and which means I'm going to be his servant, I'm going to be his slave, I'm going to be in his service, and that's not the exaltation of me, it's the exaltation of Christ. And if that doesn't sound fun to you, you haven't figured it out. This is the most joyful thing you can do with your life, is serving God by serving others even to the point of death. And why? How can the disciples walk out of the Sanhedrin with their backs bleeding and bruised and be joyful that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ? Because they got it. And the world says, that's stupid. And the Christian says, it's the smartest thing out there. It's the best. Why? Because God has called us to it. And He has called us to His wisdom, to His power. He's called us into His fellowship. He's called us to be His saints. This is the invitation of God for the Christian. And I I fear that we miss that because we, we think God only invites unbelievers to salvation. And certainly He does that. He calls all men everywhere to repentance. But the calling of God doesn't end there. It's the beginning of it. And every day God is calling you. And it is soft and it is tender. He's calling you not to get saved again, but to be what He has prepared you to be. Before the foundation of the earth, He prepared you to be something and He's calling you to it. Be that, what I've intended for you to be. Why have I intended you to be that? Because I intended it for all who have trusted in me. Not just those fancy pants over there in Corinth. But all Christians, and this is the force of verse 2 that we looked at, you're called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You call on Christ. Christ says, now you have called upon my name asking me to forgive you to come to salvation. All right, now you are in my family. Now here is my calling on you. And by and large, Paul uses this word calling to refer to God's prepared expectations 
and prepared blessings for those who trust in Him. He has called us to obedience on this side of salvation. He has called us to sainthood on this side of salvation. He has called us to fellowship with His Son on this side of salvation. He has called us to His wisdom and to His power on this side of salvation. Consider the grammar and the structure of these sentences. That is overwhelmingly Paul's focus is that, listen, my life on this side of salvation is called to be an apostle. You, on, on the same side of the work of Christ, you're called to be saints. You're called into fellowship with Christ, a oneness, a unity with Him. You're called into His power, into His wisdom. And that's just scratching the surface, folks. Rightly, does Isaiah say, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. God's prepared wondrous things. But He will not enforce any of them upon you. He invites you to them. He invites you. Would you like to have fellowship with my Son? He's your Savior. Do you want to have fellowship with Him? Would you like to be holy ones? I've cleansed you of your sin. I've given you the Spirit and my power to do so. Would you like to be that? Would you like to be saints? I've called. I bid you to it. I invite you to it. I expect it of you because now i prepared this ahead of time that you could do and be all these things. And the Corinthians were exercising some of that but with wrong motives and Paul goes back and says, listen, this is all originated from God's calling. It is all uh, for the Christian we are capable of because of God's power and His wisdom. And so there is no glory for me in any of it. But there is joy and rejoicing. There is the wonder of it. There is the marvel of walking in these wondrous gifts that God's prepared for us ahead. This is the context of this idea of calling. And so Paul later on in Corinthians is going to say, you know what, when you got saved, and if you were single, when you were called into this, all these things, stay single. Is it a sin not to? No, he says it's not a sin to get married. If you're married, and even if you're married to an unbeliever, at that point where you were now responding to the calling of God because you've surrendered your will to Him, stay in that relationship. You don't know what God has in store there. And so this idea of calling isn't going to be dropped by Paul by any means. It's going to be carried along that now, listen, as soon as you accept Christ as your Savior, it's not the end of God's calling, it's the beginning. And every day, He's calling you to these wonderful things that He has prepared ahead of time for you because you are one who has believed. If you're here and you haven't believed, you don't get anything what I've talked about. Really. But if you're here as a believer, these things should be precious to you. You say, oh, I want it more. Well, then respond to God's invitation. Each day, I will 
except from the hand of God's grace. All these things that He has planned for everyone who believes. There's no distinction. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, no distinction. God says, I've called you all into these wondrous things that are so wonderful that it's beyond really your senses to grasp them. And your natural man will never understand them. But if you walk in the Spirit, not only are they not foolishness, but as Paul tells the Corinthians, you will have the mind of Christ. And in that condition, it says, you will rightly judge all things and be judged by no one. For if God is pleased, because you are heeding His calling, what can man say against you? 